are working our way through a series called Incomparable, and it is a chapter-by-chapter study through the book of, let's let them know, church, through the book of Matthew, very good. And today we're in chapter 27, very good. Matthew chapter 27, let's start with prayer. Father in heaven, today we look forward to what you have in store for us. We have already been blessed, hugely blessed, by the testimony of Josh and Katie, by the electric energy of Isaiah, and Father, also by that singing. Man, my heart was just lifted to heaven. Oh, that rugged cross. And Father, now as we turn our attention to Scripture, may you turn your attention toward us by the Spirit. We know, Father, that your attention is ever upon us, that your eye is on a sparrow, And even upon us, you know the very numbers of the hairs on our head. And so now as we open ourselves up, Father, this has been a busy week. For some, it's been a chaotic week. It's the last week of 2016. Never again will we have a week like this. This is the last week of this year. Father, may we launch into the new year with with some freshness, some textual freshness. Give us your spirit. Give us your grace. Give us your word this morning. We are waiting in anxious expectation of what you have in store for us today. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. There are only 28 chapters in Matthew. We'll be here this week, we'll be here next week, and either one or... We'll be here three or four more weeks. I haven't decided yet fully, but I should let you know that I've also... I'm 99% sure that I know what our next series is going to be on, and all of our people that were in youth Sabbath school class, I've already told them, so they have the secret, but they're not telling anybody, okay? So I'm not going to announce that just yet, but I'm really excited about it, and I think they were pretty excited about it too, except Seth. Seth, you're not too excited. Well, are you excited about the topic, but you just didn't like the title? You didn't like the title, but the topic's Okay. Okay, so we'll probably be announcing that next week or the week after. So today we're in Matthew chapter 27, and uh, we're going to go through not quite the first half. We're going to make it all the way through to about verse 26. So we'll be in verses 1 to 26. Let's spend a little bit of time in review. First, the title of our sermon today is, His Blood Be Upon Us. His Blood Be On Us. That's the title of our sermon today. We'll get there. For those of you that have been with us on this journey through Matthew. We have divided the 28 chapters of Matthew up into seven chapters in our series. Jesus as son, Jesus as preacher, as healer, and as leader. Also Jesus as teacher, seer, and now we are right in the heart of our final chapter, Jesus as conqueror. But as we learned last week in our sermon titled Swords and Lords, Jesus is going to be a conqueror in a most unusual unexpected way. And we're going to continue that trend today as we look at Jesus as conqueror. Three quick slides to remind ourselves of where we've come from last week, and it will set the stage for where we're going as we journey into Matthew chapter 27. First, God's heart is to receive violence and pain, not to inflict it. Can the church say amen? Right? He didn't come to put people on crosses, but to be put himself on a cross, and we spent time on that last week. Number two, The cross belongs to the way that God rules the world. And we spent just, we took a little detour, a little foray last Sabbath into the book of Revelation. And we saw in John's cinematic vision that when he saw the throne, right, the great throne, the great white throne from which the governance of the universe takes place, he saw in symbolic imagery there a lamb as if it had been slain. And we looked at the theologian Richard Bauckham there who who basically looked at that and said, hey, the, the... 
the necessary deduction from a slain lamb on the universe's throne is that the cross belongs to the way God rules the world and the universe. That's what's in his heart. It's in his heart not to inflict violence, not to inflict suffering and pain, but to be on the receiving end of it. And then our third and final slide, we spent time sort of theologically dissecting the movie Hacksaw Ridge. And there's that great line in there when one of Desmond Doss's superiors says, you don't win wars by giving your life. You don't win wars, Desmond, by giving your life. But apparently Desmond had it right all along, that in fact the greatest war, not just a battle, not just a skirmish, but the greatest war that has ever been fought and the greatest war that has ever been won was not won by the taking of life, but by the giving of life. And that's what we're going to see here today. It's going to be really, really exciting. Last week I gave you a homework assignment, and that was if you had the book Desire of Ages in your home, it was to read a chapter, just one chapter. Does anybody remember what that chapter was titled? Gethsemane, very good. I'm going to give you a similar homework assignment today, and the homework assignment is to read the chapter Judas. That's the title, Judas. Take you about 30 minutes to do it. I did it this morning at about 20, right? So today, that's your homework assignment. If you have that book, if you don't have that book, come let me know. I'll make sure that you get one. But we're going to spend time today talking about one of the most notorious and uh, confounding picture uh, pick persons in all of Scripture, and that is Judas Iscariot. The very last chap, the very last paragraph of that chapter that I had you read last week from Desire of Ages says this. The disciples were terrified as they saw Jesus permit himself to be taken and bound. They were offended that he should suffer this humiliation to himself and to them. They could not understand his conduct, conduct and they blamed him for submitting to the mob. In their indignation and fear, Peter proposed that they save themselves. And that's how the chapter on Gethsemane ends. The disciples, in incredulity and in stupor, they see Jesus, much to their amazement, be led away by the violent mob, by the raucous mob, that Jesus submits himself to their violent overtures, and they're like, whoa, if we're not careful, they're going to take us too. And so they scatter and flee, and Peter's clarion cry to the disciples is, save yourselves, save yourselves. And that's how the chapter ends, and it's really how chapter 26 ends. Come with me now to chapter 27. Let's read the first 10 verses of Matthew chapter 27. Let's set the table here and see what the text of Scripture has in store for us. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. He has been through this mockery of a trial that has taken place late that evening when he was accused of blasphemy. What was the blasphemous thing that Jesus had said and done? Well, the witnesses couldn't quite agree, but they finally got a couple to agree on the fact that he seemed to have said something about that the temple would be destroyed and that he who had something to do with it. And so, yep, yep, there it was. The high priest, in a show of indignation, had rent his clothes and had said, blasphemy, and Jesus now stands accused before his own people, the Jewish people. Now morning has come. All the chief priests and the elders are saying, man, how do we get rid of this guy? Not just temporarily, not just stick him in a prison cell, not just, you know, uh, sequester him out in the rural environs. How do we get rid of this troublesome, provocative rabbi once and for all? Verse 2, and they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. That word has come up again and again and again and again and again. Delivered, delivered. Jesus had said, the Son of Man will be delivered. 
Judas Iscariot says, I will deliver him to you. He is now delivered. There's something very intentional about a delivery. If you get a delivery, it was supposed to come. Somebody sent it. It was supposed to arrive there. There's purpose. There's aim. There's, there's teleology there. There's intentionality there. This is not just some random, willy-nilly, circuitous path that Jesus is on. Jesus is being delivered from A to B, from B to C, from C to D. Jesus knows the journey that he's on. He is being delivered. And the fascinating thing is, he's not really being delivered by Judas. And he's not really being delivered by the religious leaders. And he's not really even going to be delivered by Pilate. He himself had said, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down myself. When Peter had taken out his sword there in the, in the garden and had tried by violent deliverance and overture to save Jesus, Jesus said, Peter, don't you think that right now I could pray to my father and legions of angels would be dispatched? Jesus is not going involuntarily. He's not going kicking and screaming all along at every step, at every marker. He is being delivered, 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 but it is a delivery that is consensual. He is agreeing to go. He is going voluntarily, and he knows exactly where he is going. They don't know that, so they're thinking, oh, we, we, we will deliver him to Pilate. They're simply cooperating with the plan of salvation that God had envisioned eons before. Verse 3, then Judas, the scene now cuts to Judas, and we're going to spend the next eight verses looking at Judas Judas will be one of three major figures that we look at this morning. We're going to spend time with Judas, we're going to spend time with Pilate, and we're going to spend time with Barabbas. Judas, Pilate, and Barabbas. That was almost the title of the sermon today, Judas, Pilate, and Barabbas. But it didn't have a sort of, I wanted something a little more meaty than that. And so we're going to go with his blood be on us. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to that. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple. This will be key. In the temple. This conversation, this transaction is happening in the temple. Where is it happening, everyone? Say it with me. In the temple. He threw the pieces of silver down in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and they said, it is not lawful to put them in the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought within the potter's field to bury strangers in. Even here, even in this tragic betrayal sequence, Matthew does not miss an opportunity to show you a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Verse 8, therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Even here in this tragical sequence, in this terrible moment where Jesus has been betrayed and the betrayer has come to the realization and has hung himself, even here, Matthew's like, hey, even that, even that was a fulfillment, a messianic fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, an Old Testament passage about the selling for 30 pieces of silver and the purchase of a field. Now, just as last week I asked you to read through the chapter of Gethsemane, this week I'm asking you to read through the chapter of Judas. What I did in my reading through the chapter of Judas is I read through it and I tried to say, I tried to analyze in that chapter 
that great chapter from the classic Desire of Ages, penned by Ellen White, are there markers? Are there indicators? Are there, can, could we have, if we didn't know the end of the story, could we have diagnosed where it was going? Could we have seen that there was something a little off about Judas, something that might have raised our suspicions? Or is it only like Monday morning you know, quarterbacking, as they say in the United States? Are we only now, with the end of the story already in view, are we able to look back and say, oh, I saw it all along? Were there any indicators along the way? And one of the things I loved about this chapter is that Ellen White shows at several critical junctures, several places, she uses the text and shows here something was a little off, here something was a little off, here something was a little off, so that when we get to the culmination of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, it's almost expected. It's the logical and, and, and reasonable outworking of what had been f- fermenting all along. So I want to read you several sort of choice sections from that chapter. Judas had planned that John the Baptist would be delivered from prison. This is going well back into the early part of Jesus' ministry. Judas Judas had a plan. Oh, we'll get John the Baptist out of prison. But lo, John was left to be beheaded. And Jesus, instead of asserting his royal right and avenging the death of John, with violence no doubt, retired with his disciples to a country place while Judas wanted more aggressive warfare. This was sort of maybe the first instance where Judas began to scratch his head at the movements and the decisions of Jesus. Hey, how come you allow John the Baptist to be beheaded? Bad move. That was a bad mistake, Jesus. Let's let's take this situation. Let's take it by violence. let's Let's take it by force. She continues later. Judas was the first to take advantage of the enthusiasm excited by the miracle of the loaves. You might remember Jesus fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes, and the people were so excited about this that they tried to make him king by force. And when Judas saw that there was a general expectation to make Jesus as the king, he, he was one of the foremost in raising, yeah, 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 we need a king. It was he who set on foot the project to take Christ by force and make him king. He was right behind that. Christ's discourse in the synagogue concerning the bread of life was the turning point in the history of Judas. When Jesus had gone into the synagogue, Matthew doesn't tell us this story, but John does, and it said, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, and people were deeply offended. They were like, what? And many of the disciples began to go away, and it was at that point, she says, that Judas began to say, ah, this is not the Messiah train I want to be on. This is not the Messiah I had hoped for. Yes, I've seen the miracles. Yes, I've seen the demonic deliverances. Yes, I've seen some really cool things. But all this stuff about eating flesh and drinking blood especially offended their Jewish sensitivities. And she says that was a turning point for Judas. That's where Judas was like, you know what? I think I'm looking for a new bus. When Jesus presented to the rich young ruler the condition of discipleship, remember he had said, sell all that you have and follow me. And the rich young ruler had turned away from Jesus' invitation. Judas was displeased. He thought that a mistake had been made. Oh, man, Jesus really blew that situation. He had resources. He had opportunities. He had connections and networking that could have helped us in the furtherance of the good news. If such men as this ruler could be connected with the believers, they would help sustain Christ's cause, Judas thought. Yet Judas made no open opposition, nor seemed to question the Savior's lesson. He made no outward murmur until the time of the feast in Simon's house, which we were at just a few weeks ago, where the flask, the alabaster flask, was broken open, and Judas begins to raise, hey, 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 that could have been sold and given to the poor. 
Oh, the value of that, man, we could have done some real good with that. Here's the first time where Judas openly stands in opposition to something that Jesus is saying and doing. Jesus is affirming the woman's devotion. Jesus is affirming the woman's anointing. And Judas is like, that's not cool. Here you have a tension, and that tension doesn't begin to develop until right at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. When Mary anointed the Savior's feet, Judas manifested his covetous disposition, but Judas was not yet totally hardened. There was still an openness there. Even after he had twice pledged himself to betray the Savior, there was opportunity for repentance. At the Passover supper, Jesus proved his divinity by revealing the traitor's purpose. He tenderly included Judas in the ministry to the disciples. Jesus knows that Judas has betrayed him. He knows that all along he has been sowing seeds of discord and foment. And Jesus is hoping and, and pleading and inviting to such a degree that even in the garden when Jesus, excuse me, when Judas betrays him with an insincere kiss, the words out of Jesus' mouth are just fraught with significance, fraught with appeal, fraught with invitation. Friend, friend, my friend, my friend and companion of these last years, what are you doing here, my friend? Even here there is a tenderness, there is an invitation and an appeal. Judas did not, however, believe that the Christ would permit himself to be arrested. You actually see that in the text. Look again at verse 3. If you look carefully, you see that nuance in the text. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Judas, like the other disciples, didn't believe for a moment that Jesus would consent to his arrest. In fact, in a weird kind of way, Judas actually believes that he is helping Jesus along. He thinks that Jesus is too timid, too modest, too retiring to assert his divinity, to assert his messianic identity, to assert himself. And so Judas is like, look, all this talk about crucifixion, all this talk about betrayal, all this talk about death, there's no way. That's not going to happen. We've mentioned several times before that it was inconceivable for a Messiah to be ki killed in a Jewish mind. Inconceivable for a true Messiah to be hung on a Roman instrument of torture. So Judas actually thinks in a strange sort of way that he's doing Jesus a favor by betraying him because he's going to force the issue. He's going to create a conflict and a hostile situation. And when these people come to arrest Jesus, Jesus will finally and fully assert some of that messianic power that they had seen glimpses of, whether it was the feeding of the 5,000 or the raising of Lazarus. Judas knows that Jesus is powerful, and he knows that he possesses some supernatural ability to, 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 to conduct himself. Several times he has escaped and made his way out of very difficult circumstances. Judas believes he's going to force the situation. All the disciples, none of them believe that Jesus will consent to this arrest. And so when the mob comes and they take him and they arrest him, verse 3 says, that's when Judas was like, oh, you're kidding. Judas did not, however, believe that Christ would permit himself to be arrested. Look at this. Since he had escaped so many snares, thought Judas, he certainly would not allow himself to be taken. He fully believed that Christ would escape out of their hands. He would be doing Jesus a favor. Jesus' timidity, Jesus' humility, Judas would push him along, help him along. Judas decided to put the matter to the test. If Jesus really was the Messiah, the people for whom he had done so much would rally about him and they would finally proclaim him king. This would forever settle many minds that were now in uncertainty. In amazement, he saw that the Savior suffered himself to be led away. 
But as hour after hour went by, Judas looking, observing, trying to stay abreast of the situation, what was going on inside of the trial, hour by hour, and Jesus submitted himself to all the abuse heaped upon him, a terrible fear came to the traitor that he had sold his master to his death. The plan has miserably backfired, and when Judas realizes that the plan has miserably backfired, he takes this 30 pieces of silver that he thought would perhaps secure his financial future. He realizes that Jesus has consented to his arrest, has consented, and he goes back to the temple. He goes back to the where, everyone? To the temple and to the priests. Goes back to the temple and the priests and says, I have sinned. Now, the significance of this is purposeful. There's no way that Matthew has stumbled upon this. He's making a point. What is the response of the priests to Judas' confession? I have sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. I've made a giant mistake. What's their response? That's none of our business, mate. See to that yourself. You take care of that. Don't bother us with sin. Don't bother us with messy mistakes. Don't bother us with confessions. Hey, we're the priests, and this is the temple. What do you think this is? The place where you bring sin and difficult... See, Matthew didn't stumble onto this point. This is the very point, in fact, that Matthew is making. The temple stands in stark contrast to Jesus. We've seen this again and again. All the way back in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel had appeared to Mary and said, you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. All along, Matthew, in his own unique and inimitable way, has been hinting to us the temple used to be the place where God was active, used to be the place of God's mercy, used to be the place of God's forgiveness, used to be the place where God was doing things. Now that is Jesus. Jesus is the place of forgiveness. He is the place of mercy. He is the place of God's presence. He is the place of God's action on earth. And this this symphonic crescendo has been building all through the Gospel of Matthew. And here it comes to this. It's not quite there. We're we're just two notes before the giant note that we're going to see next week where the great contrast and conflict between the temple on one hand and Jesus on the other, when that veil is ripped from top to bottom. This will be the final nail in the coffin where God is saying in unequivocal language, I'm done with the temple. So much so that within just a few decades, the temple will be rubble. But Matthew's been telling us this all along. In his own way, and and Mark and Luke and John have their own ways of building this tension between Jesus and the temple. But right here, you can't miss it. You cannot miss it that a sinner who has made a terrible mistake, has made a horrifically bad choice, who has violated his own conscience, has gone to the priests. The purpose of the priest was to intercede between God and man. The purpose of the priest was education and intercession and mercy. They go, he goes to the priests in the temple. The purpose of the temple was to be the place where God was working and God was forgiving and salvation was available and mercy was available. And a sinner in need goes into the temple and the priests cannot be bothered. See that to yourself. Friends, I want to tell you something. There are so many ways in which, in just these last few chapters of Matthew, Matthew 21 to where we are here in 27, the temple has been set in purposeful, textual contrast with, with Jesus. Let's just look at a few of them here. 
The temple versus Jesus. First of all, Matthew chapter 21, Jesus cleanses the temple. Number two, this prophetically and pregnantly puts at least a temporary halt to the temple activities. Jesus here is making a prophecy. This all is going to stop. He stops it temporarily when he turns over the, the tables and the money changers. He then invites the blind and the lame into the temple and he heals them, effectively saying... What should be happening here is mercy and forgiveness and restoration. But what is happening here is mere economics. Number four, Jesus leaves the temple and he returns the next day to see if those seeds that he had sowed had taken root. But in fact, they had not. And so number five, he tells a series of parables diagnosing the temple and diagnosing the religious leaders. And every one of these ends in judgment. Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 22. Then in Matthew chapter 23, in a last act of desperation, Jesus goes into the temple, and we spent time on this, and pronounces those woes upon the religious leaders and upon the temple. Fools and blind. Fools and blind. We had a sermon titled, Fools and Blind, which was not only a term of derision, but of an invitation. Jesus is set in purposeful contrast and juxtaposition here to the temple. When he leaves the temple for the last time, as we mentioned in our sermon, when the temple The living, breathing, fleshly temple Jesus leaves the cedar, gold, marble temple, the edifice that was built. When the temple leaves the temple, he says, your house, your house is left to you. And then he reaches back into the pages of Daniel and grabs that pregnant word, desolate, desolate. That's lifted straight from the pages of Daniel, the abomination of desolation. Your house is left to you desolate. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he had gone into the temple, he had turned over uh, the the, the, uh, money changers' tables and he had ceased the temple activities, but he had said, take this stuff out of here. You have made my father's house a den of thieves. My father's house. This is my house. This is my dad's house. But three years later, after persistent and consistent rejections of his messianic identity, now it's not my house and my dad's house. It's your house. That's your house now, and it is left to you desolate. Jesus then goes out, winds his way up to the temple. The disciples, winds his way up, excuse me, to the mountain. The disciples come to try and show him the buildings of the temple, and Jesus says, let me tell you something, fellas. Not two stones here will be left wobblingly tilted upon another. The place will be totally sacked, foretells the temple's destruction. Four more. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a pregnancy in these words. When they come with swords and with clubs, his response is, I sat daily teaching in the temple. And you come now with violence. You come now with hostility. Why didn't you just invite me to your party? Number 10, Jesus is accused of blasphemy against the temple. Oh, this guy, when they couldn't get two witnesses to agree on anything, they finally got, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember him saying something about destroying the temple. Blasphemy against the temple. Purposeful contrast, purposeful juxtaposition. And then now, this is where Matthew's building. Judas comes in. He's a sinner. He's made a terrible mistake. He has violated his conscience. He needs mercy. Yes, even Judas Iscariot needs mercy. He needs forgiveness. He needs hope. He needs restoration and the response of the priests and therefore of and and by extension of the temple is we don't have anything to do with that mate see to that yourselves and judas goes and hangs himself and then finally the temple is unable to bring peace and healing the temple is no longer the place of god's presence that's the point that matthew was making it is inescapable again 
This is about two notes before the final uh, symphonic note in which when Jesus cries out, we'll see this next week, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. That's God saying, we're done. We're done. We're not quite there yet, but we're headed there. The temple is no longer the place of God's presence, God's actions, and God's forgiveness. Jesus is. Can the church say amen? You. Jesus had said again and again, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will bring healing. I will bring restoration. I will bring hope. Which raises the question. If Judas Iscariot, Judas Iscariot had gone not to a lifeless temple, not to a bunch of priests who could have cared less about him, but only used him as a tool, as a, as a conduit to get to Jesus. I would ask you a question. If Judas had gone with sincere repentance and sincere despair to Jesus, rather than to the priests, the priests, how would Jesus have treated him? Would Jesus have said, hey, see that to you, mate? That has nothing to do with me. Deal with your own sin. Deal with your own shame. Deal with your own guilt. Is that what would have happened, church? No, Jesus would have said exactly what he said to every sinner. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Judas had wounded his soul. He had wounded his conscience, and he needed rest. He needed hope. He needed a sense that even this could be forgiven, but he found none at the temple, and he found none with the priest. He went to the wrong place. Judas went to a lifeless temple and a lifeless priesthood when even then he should have gone to the Savior. Can somebody say amen? This is the point that Matthew is making. He didn't stumble merrily upon this point. Matthew is saying, look, the priests and the temple can't deal with sin anymore. They don't know what to do with a betrayer. They don't know what to do with somebody who has betrayed their Lord, betrayed their master, betrayed their friend. You see to that yourself. We're busy. In fact, then what takes place is they get into a petty argument about what to do with the money. The gravitas of Judas hanging lifeless from a tree is juxtaposed with an insular little argument about how it is and is not appropriate to spend this money. After all, it's blood money, which means they knew that it was the money of betrayal. So here you have this other juxtaposition where religious people are really fastidious and really concerned about their little religious in-house conversation, but don't care that there's a body of a person who needed hope and saving and help hanging from a tree. Craig S. Keener comments on this very point in his commentary on Matthew. This narrative also further indicates or indicts the heartlessness of the priestly leadership. Lest modern Christians be tempted to conceive these leaders in ethnic rather than political and religious terms. Ah, don't think of them as Jews. They're just people. They should take note how many churches today, let this sink in. I hope this doesn't apply to Kingscliff, and in some ways I think it might. I hope it doesn't apply to your local church How many churches today seem more concerned about petty church rules than about the life and death needs in the communities around them? You've got these religious leaders debating about what's an appropriate and an inappropriate use of the temple monies, and there's somebody hanging from a tree who was looking for hope, looking for restoration, looking for healing and forgiveness. Keener continues, the leader's blatant unconcern for justice or for his life contrasts starkly with their attention to purity on details. Jesus has already said this in Matthew chapter 23 in his indictment of the religious leaders of his day. You pay tithe of mint and cumin and anise. Oh, you're so good. You're so fastidious. You even divide out one cumin seed from the other nine, one anise seed from the other nine, one mint leaf from the other nine, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, love and justice and mercy. 
Judas comes to the temple. He comes to the priest looking for love and mercy and justice. And what he gets is totally neglect and, and he's dispatched and disregarded. And, but then the religious leaders debate their petty little rules by sentencing Judas to take care of his own guilt. They have unconsciously sentenced themselves before God. And friends, this is huge. Religion may fail us, but Jesus never will. Can the church say amen? Even Seventh-day Adventism can fail you. Even your local Seventh-day Adventist church, your local Baptist church, your local Methodist church, your local pastor, even I, even I, I know it's hard to believe, even I could fail you and disappoint you and hurt you. Religion can fail you. And not only can religion fail, but church can fail. I think this is one of the most friendly, hospitable, happy churches I've ever been to. But that's because I show myself to be friendly and I introduce myself to basically everybody that I meet. But lots of people come to this church, or I should say some people come to this church, and they find it to be not friendly. They find it to be cold and clicky and insular and, and sectarian. Because people generally stick to the people that are their friends, and they don't go outside that little dangerous insular community that they're accustomed to. Friends, I want to tell you, a church can disappoint you, and a religion can disappoint you, and people can disappoint and fail you, but Jesus will never fail you. Can you say amen? Matthew's making that point. There was healing and hope and forgiveness even for Judas, but he went to the wrong place. And I want to tell you this, lots of people today are going to religion when they should be going to Jesus. Did you hear that, church? Lots of people today are going to religion when they should be going to Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I love biblical, I love biblical Protestantism, and I love Seventh-day Adventism. I get it. I get it. I'm a passionate apologist and advocate of Seventh-day Adventist Christianity. You won't meet somebody that's more passionate about it than me. But I am well aware that the church is made up of people, and people can be disappointing. People can fail, but Jesus will never fail. There's another thing going on here, and that is this idea that guilt has to go somewhere. Guilt has to go somewhere. When, when Judas brings his guilt, I have betrayed innocent blood. You can feel the despair. I have done something I should have never done. He brings his guilt. The whole purpose of the temple, the whole purpose of the sanctuary was to take that guilt and bring it to God through the blood. That there was a way to discharge your shame and discharge your guilt, to get it off of you. Like when you go to the beach and you get that sand. I don't know if you're that way, but I'm that way. I love the beach and I love the ocean, but I hate sand between my toes. Can you relate? I don't like sand on my fingers, that feeling that you get when you leave the beach. I just have to wash my hands and I have to take a shower. I have to get all that stuff off me. That's the way guilt and shame is. You can wallow in sin and you can have a great time in sin, but it sticks to you. It sticks to you, and you've got to get rid of it. You've got to discharge it. When Judas says, look, I've made a huge mistake. Please, is there, I- I'm sorry, take this money back. I made a mistake. I wish I would have never done that. They're like, hey, we, we, that's your problem, mate. And how many churches today and how many religions today take people, I'm, and real sinners, terrible sinners, sinners like Judas, and we just turn them away because they're too messy. It's too complicated. It's too tricky to deal with people's actual lives. We just like this nice farce that we, hey, I'm fine. Happy Sabbath. Great to see you. God bless you. Peace out. And then we go back and we live our struggling, difficult, sometimes depressed, sometimes messy, sometimes complicated lives. 
But when people come and they have real problems and real issues and they really need real forgiveness, sometimes it's kind of messy. And our inclination is to say, look, you take care of that. You come to us when you're clean and ready. But the thing is, is that guilt just doesn't stay nicely and neatly in a little box. Guilt discharges itself. And when Judas had nowhere to put his guilt, he hung himself. Guilt will either be internalized and will result in your ultimate demise, or you will discharge that guilt. And Jesus had said, come to me, all you that labor and are laden with sin and guilt, with hypocrisy, with failure, with betrayal. Bring that garbage to me. Bring that crap to me. Bring all of that messiness to me. Bring that to me. But when Judas brought it to the church, when he brought it to the temple, when he brought it to the priest, they're like, ah, you take care of your own mess. What do we have to do with that mess? You take care of your own mess. But people can't take care of their own messes. So they either medicate themselves out of consciousness or they hang themselves or they do some terrible thing. They placate themselves with movies and sport and every distraction under the sun or spending or materialism or affairs or whatever. Guilt just doesn't sit there. It has to go out. It manifests itself in some way. And so Judas hangs himself. Guilt has to go somewhere. Now we introduce ourselves to Pilate. Let's pick up the story in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him and said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, This is now the third time that this phrase has occurred. It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear all the stuff they're saying? Don't you hear all the things they're testifying against you? But he answered him not one word, so the governor marveled greatly. The reason that Pilate marvels greatly is that in, Roman, in, Roman legal, in a Roman legal situation, if you don't defend yourself, you are presumed guilty. Jesus is being accused of a capital crime. He's being accused of being a rival figure, a kingly figure. This is a messianic claim. It's a kingly claim. It's a revolutionary claim. And so all of these, all of these accusations are being hurled against Jesus. And then Pilate's like, look, is this stuff true or not? You almost sense, you know, Pilate's frustration. We don't know much about Pilate, by the way. He was a two-bit governor from, you know, basically a certain period in Rome's history. And if he hadn't crucified Jesus, you'd never have heard his name. Right? So he's like kind of got this like thing has landed on his desk. And he's like, oh, man, I really don't want to deal with this. This is a messy situation. He's got this clamorous mob. He's got this quiet Messiah figure. And so he's just like, you can tell he just wants to be done with it. He just doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And so he finally is like, hey, don't you hear all the stuff they're saying? Come on, man, make a defense. If you don't make a defense, I'm duty-bound by our own legal code to kill you or at least to hand you over for a flagellation or something. Are you the king of the Jews? That's the accusation against you, and we'll get there next week. That was Jesus' accusation, of which he was guilty, by the way. The accusation against Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus here for a third time says, it is as you say. Jesus had been at the meal, and it said, one of you will betray me. And Judas says, is it me? Jesus says, it is as you say. When Jesus had stood before the religious leaders, he had, they had said, are you the son of God or not? And he said, it is as you say, three times. It's what you're saying. It's what you're saying. It's what you're saying. Friends, for most of us, the problem is not that we don't know the truth. It's that we don't want to hear the truth. When he says to Pilate, it is as you say, I thought, man, what a clever thing to say. So I went and looked at it at other translations. It is as you say. 
You say so. You have said it. Those are your words. And my personal favorite was, if you say so. Am I the betrayer? If you say so. Are you the son of God? If you say so. Are you the king of the Jews? If you say so. Jesus here stands before Pilate and says, you have told the truth. Verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished, which is a fascinating little serendipitous stroke of history because the whole point of Passover was deliverance from bondage. Isn't it interesting that the governor's tradition was to release somebody on Passover? Verse 16, and at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate believes that he's setting up an obvious choice here. He's placing this notorious criminal Barabbas in purposeful juxtaposition to Jesus, who seems to be, if anything, a harmless philosopher, you know, rabbi figure. And so Pilate's like, this will be an easy choice. This will get me out of this difficult situation that has landed on my administrative desk this morning. But he cannot believe it when he hears the people. Verse 18, it says, for he knew that they had delivered him because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. I've noted this before and we'll pick it up in a couple weeks. Matthew cannot stop telling the story that women are faithful. I'm going to say that again. Matthew cannot stop telling the story in the closing scenes of Jesus' life that men are getting it wrong and women are getting it right. It's purposeful. There's no question that that's a story that Matthew is telling. And here, it's not Pilate who sorts out this situation. It's Pilate's wife who has a dream who then sends that dream of concern to her husband. Hey, let this guy go. Just as there in the, in the, in the Feast of Simon uh, at his house when everybody else is like, man, that could have been sold for some, for, that could have been used to help the poor. The woman's getting it right. The men are all getting it wrong. And when we get right down to the end of this thing, we're going to see the women get it right and the men get it wrong. Something is going on here. Jesus is using the weak to confound the wise. He's using the seemingly insignificant to usher in the great good news of the, return, of, of the, of the uh, uh, kingdom of God. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So the governor answered and said to them, hey, come on, now answer me the question. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? And he's astonished to hear them say, hey, we want Barabbas. Pilate's like, what? Maybe you misunderstood the question I was asking. What do, what do you want me to do with this guy, this harmless philosopher, sage, rabbi guy who won't even talk? Clearly no violence in him. What do you want me to do with this one, the one that they call Messiah? And they said, crucify him. And Pilate's like, what? We don't just crucify anybody. We, crucifixion is reserved for the most malignant of brigands. Hey, crucify him. Look at verse 23. Why? What has he done? Crucifixion is quite an extreme, but he's perceiving that there's something. This is not a Roman thing that's going on here. This is a religious thing that's going on here. There's professional jealousy and there's envy and there's all these other subtexts that are going on here. Pilate now begins to realize, man, I got a situation on my hands here. I got a religious mob who's crying out for blood and I cannot, remember, he's just a two-bit governor in a remote province of the Roman Empire and he does not want things to get out of control on his watch. And he's looking and he's thinking, man, 
the situation stinks. I really don't want to crucify this guy, but I don't want to riot either. And I don't care about this guy. I don't care about Barabbas either. It's not a big deal to me. And so watch what happens here. But they cried out all the more, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and symbolically washed his hands before the multitude. And he said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it. You will notice just how many times we have been told that Pilate is fully aware of Jesus' innocence. Right? Pilate, in verse 18, knew that they delivered him because of envy. His wife says, have nothing to do with that just man. Pilate himself asks the question in verse 23, what evil has he done? In verse 24, he washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. Matthew wants you to know, and even Pilate wants you to know, that Jesus is not guilty of a capital crime, but as we'll learn next week, he is in fact guilty of the accused crime, the crime that he is accused of, and that is the crime of being king of the Jews. You see to it. Fascinatingly, that's the very same thing that the religious leader said to Judas. What do we have to do with your guilt? What do we have to do with your betrayal? You see to it. Pilate's now, hey, I don't want to have anything to do with this sticky administrative situation. You see to it. Everybody's passing the buck here. Nobody wants to deal with this situation. They just want this messy situation to go away. The situation with Judas was messy. Take it away. The situation with Jesus is messy. It it has riot potential written all over it. Take it away. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. There's our title. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That's our last verse for today. Let's see what we've learned in these verses. First of all, when Jesus says repeatedly, it is as you say, those are your words. This is echoing the very sentiment that Jesus had given several chapters before, Matthew chapter 12. For by your own words you will be justified, and by your own words you will be condemned. When Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you say it. You said it. When Judas says, am I the betrayer? Jesus says, you said it. We do this all the time. We say really pandering really insincere things like, have I hurt you? We know good and well we've hurt them. Or we have these ridiculously qualified apologies. I'm so sorry if you felt that way. In the unlikely event that you were so sensitive that you felt that illegitimate way, then I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I hurt you. There, there, is a, there is a way that we protect ourselves, we insulate ourselves from, because we cannot face who and what we really are. I'm reading a book, man. I tell you, I had some, I had some medicine yesterday. If I seem a little fiery today, it's because I had some medicine yesterday. The medicine that I had yesterday was I read the chapter Judas, and I said, you know what? I'm not going to read Judas as somebody else. I'm going to read Judas, and I'm going to say, at what points does Judas' life find points of connection and traction in David Ashrick's life? So I read it. I said, Jesus, reveal to me my Judas-like traits. Lord, have mercy. That was some medicine for me. After that 20-minute exercise of sheer terror, I was like, man, I need to go on a bicycle ride. So I went on a bicycle ride, and I put the audio book that I'm listening to in my ears called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. And uh, I listened to chapters 5 and 6, and God was just like, yeah, did you think that was some medicine? It's like mangled and just, just, just absolutely shattered with my own weakness. We cannot face what we really are. We, we can't. 
So we stay busy and we, we, we listen to music and we have the television on and we can't, we don't like silence. So we get in the tele, hey, you get in the car, you got to have some music on, conversation. We don't love silence. We don't want to be quiet before the Lord. We don't want to be still before the Lord because in stillness and in quietude, it, it, there's, the op, there's the chance that we're going to have to spend a moment thinking about what we really are. In our innermost souls, in our insincerity, in our hypocrisy, in our disingenuousness. I mean, we're going to come face to face with, with what we know about ourselves. That's what Jesus says. You said it. You said it. You said it. You said it about yourself. You said it. You said it. In cowardice and political expediency, Pilate chooses the path of least resistance. Get this messy situation off of my desk. You see to it. The priests are like, get this messy situation off our desk. You see to it. I hope that as a Kingscliff church, when messy people come to our lives, in case you're not getting the application, let me just put it right on the table for you. I hope that when messy people with messy situations and really bad sins come to us, I hope that as a church community, we are not inclined to say, and I, as I hope as a pastor, I'm not inclined to say, you see to that. When you get your life a little more normal, something approaching normalcy, then you come back to the church and we'll be happy to have you. Jesus paid it all. Amen. Happy Sabbath. The priests and Pilate want nothing further to do with the situation, and they wash their hands of it. But Jesus will not go away quietly and easily. He cannot be dismissed so quickly and casually. There's something, gee, there's something sticky about Jesus. He won't just nicely and neatly go away. He is the person around which we organize our calendar and, and this whole Christmas thing. I mean, I just think of all these people doing the gifts and the Santa and the tree and the lights. And I just know, I am certain that, that even people who are saying Christmas, Merry Christmas, 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 Christmas. I am certain that the Holy Spirit is working on people and saying Christ must, Christ must, Christ. He's inescapable. He can't, just get, he can't just get rid of Jesus. He doesn't just go away ni- nicely and neatly. He loves us too much. Astonishingly, the people embrace the moral responsibility the priests and Pilate sought to evade. Okay, okay, okay. The priests don't want to deal with this situation. Pilate doesn't want to deal with the situation. We'll take res- the, his blood be on us. And you would think that this would be a term of condemnation, and certainly there is that element. Jesus knows that the destruction of Jerusalem is just a few decades away. But in a profound, Matthew has, there is so much profundity here, these people are actually inviting the only thing that can bring salvation. His blood be on us. His blood be on us. Last quotation here, and then I'll let you go. N.T. Wright and his Matthew for Everyone, and as both sides use the weapons that match their particular type of claim, that's what we talked about last week, the weapon of violence or the weapon of truth. We, the gospel readers, are invited to watch in awe to see which of the two, which of these two weapons, the power of aggression translated into a justice system designed to suit the rules, or the power of silence and suffering, and love. Which of these two will, in fact, be vindicated by God? We've already noted that God's heart is to receive violence and pain, not to inflict it. And when Jesus dies on Passover, no less, Barabbas goes free. You can't miss that point. That's the point. Matthew's making all these little sub-points, but it's inescapable that, that in this fascinating little historical twist, Pilate's like, look, which do you want? You want Barabbas or you want Jesus? 
And they're like, we want Barabbas. So Jesus is condemned and Barabbas goes free and it happens on Passover. Jesus is condemned, Barabbas the notorious sinner goes free and it happens on Passover. N.T. right again. The point for Matthew is that all are guilty. The priests are guilty. The crowd is guilty. Pilate is guilty. Barabbas is guilty. Everybody, the disciples are guilty. Peter is guilty. Everybody, there's universal guilt. The point for Matthew is that all are guilty. The chief priests and the elders who have handed Jesus over, Pilate the weak bully, the crowds themselves, and part of the reason for stressing universal guilt is that with the death of Jesus, redemption is offered to all. What happened close up and in sharp focus to Barabbas is now available to everyone. In other words, you go free on the Passover. When Jesus dies as king of the Jews, he draws onto himself the guilt and death of Israel and thence also of the world. Because remember, guilt has to go somewhere. It has to be discharged. If you retain your guilt, if you keep your guilt, if you internalize your guilt, it will destroy you. It might not happen in a suicidal hanging, but it will kill you either slowly or quickly. Your guilt, you cannot bear your guilt. If you knew what you really were in your innermost souls, if we could slow down enough and turn off the noise enough and the music enough and the movies enough and the games enough and the socializing enough and the sports enough, if we would just, if we would love ourselves enough to give us a little bit of quietude, a little bit of stillness, and we would ask God, as I dangerously asked him yesterday, God, show me how I'm like Judas. And we're like confronted when we see what we really are are, we would freak out. And then we'd be like Judas. We'd say, man, I got all this garbage. I got all this bleakness. I got all this blackness. I got all this crap. I got to get rid of this. Or we can just carry on. Just carry on. Happy Sabbath. Great to see you. Everything's fine. When it's not fun. Guilt has to go somewhere now, I'm going to make an appeal, and I'm going to make an altar call, which I don't do often, but we're going to do it today. And this altar call is going to be built around these three people that we have encountered today, Judas, Pilate, and Barabbas. And I'm going to invite you in this moment, because you might, you might not do this yourself, so I'm going, to, I'm going to do it for us. I'm going to do it for me, and I'm going to do it for you. And if this applies, I'm going to invite you to come forward. To begin the new year, musicians, you can come right on up. To begin the new year, with Jesus. I tell you, I spent some time in prayer this morning. The Lord, Je I had my alarm set for 5. Jesus woke me up at 4. I knew my wife had her alarm set for 5.20, so I was like, oh, what am I going to do here? So I just laid there in bed in stillness until my wife's alarm finally went off, and I just started thinking about my experience the day before in reading that chapter, Judas, in listening to those two hours of the emotionally healthy pastor being pierced repeatedly again and again. And I started thinking about, am I, just a, am I just a preacher that everybody listens to and I go to church and I'm, you know, is that, is that or, or what about you, Jesus? Do you have me? Not just can I preach your word, but do you have me? And I started asking myself some really, pro not started, I continued to ask myself some really probing questions. And then I thought to myself, I wonder if I can come up with points of identification with Judas, Pilate, and Barabbas that fit me. And you know what? It is easy to do. And so I'm wondering if there are any Judases, any Barabbases, and any Pilates out there. And if there are, I'm going to invite you to come forward and give your guilt, your actual guilt, your actual shame, 
your actual sin to God today. I am Judas. I am often with Jesus, but not with him. I look out for myself and my own interests. I've always got an eye on an exit strategy. I am Judas. I am sometimes frustrated by what Jesus does. And I find myself questioning things that happen to me. I am in for the kingdom, but I'm not all in. I criticize others, and I think I'm better than them. And I settle for association with God over intimacy with God. If any of those shoes fit you and you want to discharge your guilt, if you want to say today, I am a Judas, I'm going to invite you to come forward and discharge your guilt this morning. We're going to sing a closing song. You can come forward and give that guilt to Jesus. We will not say, ah, just see to that yourself. Just take, just take care of that yourself, that messy stuff. You take care of that. I am Judas. How about this one? I am Pilate. I am Pilate. I think my ignorance will acquit me. Some of us are very careful not to learn too much, not to read too many religious books because we're afraid we might read something that we will be accountable for. And you know that's true. Come right to the front. I want room for everybody to come forward, so just squeak through. I am Pilate. I think that my ignorance will acquit me. I waver on moral decisions. When something is in front of me and there's a yes and there's a no, there's a right and there's a wrong, there's a black and there's a white, I waver on those decisions. Things that are, in, I should be able to make that decision, I waver. I sometimes care more about others' opinions than God's truth. I am a people pleaser, not a God pleaser. As you're sitting out there, if you think, you know what? Yep, that's the glass slipper. That's the glass slipper. That's the one. Come forward, you just give that guilt to Jesus. I knowingly violate my conscience. I'll be honest with you, church, and I'm not trying to manipulate you. I can't imagine that every single person could not respond to that. Unless you're a different kind of person than I am. I knowingly violate my conscience. I take the path of least resistance. If I'm faced with a difficult, complex, messy situation, I'm often just like, man, how do I get out of the situation? And quick. I am a pilot. So maybe you're a Judas like me. Maybe you're a pilot like me. But here's some good news, friends. Maybe you're a Barabbas. I am a notorious sinner. I was kind of hoping that would fit a few people. I do not deserve mercy. 
I do not deserve freedom. I do not deserve Jesus' pleth, Jesus' death in place of my death. There we go. There's our glass slippers. The name Barabbas means Bar Abba, son of the Father. I am a son of the Father. That's what the name means. Jesus goes to the cross and the son of the Father goes free. I am a Barabbas. And finally, by the grace of God, I am saved. We're going to sing a song. We're going to put it up here on the screen. But friends, I want to tell you this. Your guilt has to go somewhere. And I can tell you there is no better place to take that guilt, that, that essence of who and what you actually are, the thing that scares us that we don't even want to think about it or look at it, all of our hypocrisy, all of our inconsistency, all of that stuff, that goop, that sand that sticks to us, I want to tell you something. It's got to go somewhere, and there is no better place to bring it, to put it, and to leave it than with Jesus. Bring your mess to Jesus. The church might let you down. Seventh-day Adventism might let you down. Protestantism might let you down. The good pastor might let you down. Your friends might let you down. Jesus will not let you down. If Judas would have come to Jesus, even at that late betrayal moment, he would have been welcomed, he would have been embraced, and he would have been forgiven. And if Jesus can forgive Peter, and if Jesus can forgive Judas, and if Jesus can forgive the world, Jesus can forgive you. Can you say amen, church? For all of the Judases, for all of the Pilots, and for all of the Barabbases, we bring our guilt today to God. We're going to sing this song. I will follow thee, my Savior. Let's sing it together. Sing it as an act of prayer and of worship as you leave your guilt with Jesus.
take and put your hand on a brother or sister close to you there. We're coming as a community, not just as individuals. We're coming as a family. Find somebody near you. Just put your hand upon them. Father, you see us here. We're a community, a family. We got a lot of visitors here today, but we got a lot of members too. And Father, we're a family in Christ, whether from this denomination or this local church or from this area. Father, we are a family. We are following Jesus. Father, we know the emphasis is not on our following, but on Jesus leading. We are fair to average followers. Sometimes we're really bad followers. But Jesus is such a profoundly good leader that we cannot help but be drawn to him and by him. Father, we look at Pilate and it's so easy to distance ourselves from him. And we look at Judas and it's so easy to think of him as something fundamentally different and other from us. But Father, the seeds and the embryo that make them them resides in us. Matthew is emphasizing clearly the universality of human guilt and human need and human brokenness. And Father, we don't want to be like Judas. We don't want to go to the wrong place. We don't want to go to people who might say to us, hey, see, that's the, see to that yourself. We want to go to the one who invited us and who promised rest for our souls, who promised forgiveness, who promised salvation, the one who said, even if your brother sins against you 490 times in a single day, you still forgive. Father, that's the mercy we need. We've got this load of blackness, this load of trash and hypocrisy and failure and insincerity and hypocrisy and meanness and cruelty and insularity and neglect, Father. We have all of that and more, and we need somewhere to put it because we can't keep it inside of us, Father. If we put it inside of us, we're going to die. So today we bring it to Jesus, and we believe that as Jesus made his way to the cross, that he made a way for us to go past the cross. And Father, what better way and what better place to begin 2017 than right here facing the cross, preparing to see Jesus stand guilty of the accusation made against him. This is the king of the Jews. And Father, today he is our king. He is our savior. He is your son. And we come to him. Take this guilt. Take this shame. Take this sin. We don't know what to do with it. Father, take it. Please chuck it in the bottom of the sea. And save us by your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, let all the Judases, all the Barabbases, and all the Pilots say, Amen. Turn to somebody next to you and give them a word of encouragement. Word of encouragement. Love you, sister. Word of encouragement. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul. 
drawing you closer to God and his will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.